people say glory to God. Glory to God. Amen. Thank you, team. Thank you, Mac, for writing. That's a beautiful, magnificent word from the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> well, we live in a time when so many a church are departing from the truth of the Word of God. We live in a time when the practically not, every, not a single week that passes by without us see some pastors, some song leaders going through what they call deconstruction, turning their back on the faith that once delivered to the saints. And so, I wrote this book called Never Give Up. It's not in the bookstores. It's not going to be released until next month. But my colleagues at Leading the Way have asked me uh, if I would make it available here uh, at the Leading the Way Resource Center as you leave. Just to let you know that this is the message from Second Timothy. This is not my legacy. It's the Apostle Paul's legacy, the last words he wrote before he died. And he talks to Timothy at his time, but he's also talking about what will happen in the last days and how many people would depart from the faith, compromise the faith, deny the authenticity and the infallibility of the Word of God. It's all there prophesied by the Apostle Paul. Just a reminder for those of you who don't know, these are not my books. They belong to Leading the Way, and Leading the Way does not sell books. It's for gift of any amount. It's a way we have been operating now for many years, and we Thank God, it doesn't matter. If you need it, you can have it. Now, I want you to join with me for a special prayer for this book um, that many, a young pastor, uh, Sunday school teachers, people who are serving all across the world, in fact, is released in Australia, Canada, and UK at all the same time, uh, that they read this book, and that they'll be encouraged. And those who will be tempted to begin to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, water it down, that this book would challenge them to repent and turn to the Lord and begin to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? amen. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that these words that the Apostle Paul wrote in that dungeon in Rome before he was beheaded to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he even talks about the last days which we are in right now, I pray that will ignite a spirit of revival, spirit of awakening in the hearts of people in the pews and people in the pulpits. Lord, we know that unless Your Spirit does His work, all of our work is in vain. And I thank You for hearing and answering, because we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Depression 
loneliness are now pandemic in our society. At a given time, I'm told that 30% of the population are suffering from some form of depression. More than 40% of the adolescent suicide stem from depression. Now, I'm not a psychologist, nor I pretend to know a great deal about these statistics, but here's what I know. I know just about every one of us at some point in our lives, at some stage in our lives, every one of us are going to experience some form of depression and discouragement. I also know biblically that feeling down, discouraged, and depressed can be more dangerous than physically falling down. Proverbs 17.22 tells us, a broken spirit dries up the bones. Spurgeon, the great preacher of yesteryear, you hear hear me quote him a lot, prince of preachers in London, he suffered from chronic depression, regular. And he describes it this way. He said, it's when you feel that your world is falling apart, that when the walls are closing in and you do not want to see anyone. From all of my studies and the experiences that I have in ministering around the world, I've learned the following. Depression is real. Depression is real. Also, there are forms of depression, many varieties of it, and you can't lump them all in one because there is uh, chemical depression, there's clinical depression, psychological depression, physical depression, and depression usually starts with self-protection, where a person closes himself inside himself and withdraws. When your spirit is deeply wounded, or someone failed you, or, as often the case, you feel that you failed yourself, when that happens, when these things happen, if the person has never been trained to go to the great physician, if has never been trained to go and place all sins under the blood of Jesus, that normally they will pull themselves inside of themselves, and they will try to retreat from the realities of life. And that is why I often tell parents, and I'm going to keep saying that, I often tell parents and my children who are young parents uh, that we must, not that we need to, we must, that we have no option but to teach our children how to deal with life's disappointments and not try to constantly shield them, because sooner or later, they have to face these things and need to know how to deal with them. They need to know that when these disappointments in life come, there is a God in heaven who loves them, and they need to turn to Him and ask for His power and His strength. You see, instead of hiding themselves Inside themselves, they'll come and hide all of their sins under the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. They feel 
are only safe when they're alone. That's what happens. Uh, they feel safe without others around them. And that compounds the problem. It really does. It compounds it. And my beloved friends, this is where we find our great man of God, the prophet Elijah, as we've been going through this series of messages, hiding inside of himself. Hiding will lead to self-pity. I'm the only one on earth who's hurting. Nobody understands me. No one else hurts like I do. And that self-pity leads to the third step, which is self-punishment. Look at the screen. I want to show you those three steps. It's always happened. You start to protect yourself by withdrawing, and then you feel sorry for yourself, and the next thing, you want to punish yourself. Why? For whatever wrong that is, there is. And that is why we must train our children repeatedly, must train our children to understand that the blood of Jesus Christ can heal, restore, and forgive whatever it is that they're feeling so that they can learn to run to the great physician uh, and stay in his presence. Why I'm saying this? Because without running to Jesus, Satan is going to show up. He's going to show up. He's going to show up. Don't ever forget that the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren and the sisters. Listen to me. He loves to remind you of your past failures and your past sins, sins that you have confessed and repented of long ago. He loves to remind you of some sort of an embarrassing situation that put you in a very awkward situation, and you feel that as if it happened yesterday, even though it may have been many decades ago. And all that makes you feel worse. Now listen, the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, even the Old Testament, the psalmist was encouraging himself, taught himself, exhausted himself, uh, admonished himself to run to the Lord when he's down. Psalm 42, verse 5. Now, I want you to read it when you go home and read it carefully, but I'm going to give you a use of interpretation. Here's what the psalmist is saying, 42, 5. Why in the world am I depressed? I must begin to praise God, and soon I will soar above my pain. Martin Luther, the great reformer, like Spurgeon, and like many of the great men and women of God in the Bible, we see it over and over and over again. He also suffered a great deal from depression, bouts of depression. And that's when he becomes vulnerable to Satan's attack. Luther uh, says that he often hears Satan whisper, whisper when he's down, and he would hear him saying, Martin, do you feel that your sins are forgiven? And sometimes he would stand up if he's sitting down, and he would say, no, I don't feel that my sins are forgiven. I know that my sins are forgiven because the Bible tells me so. Now today, as we continue in this series of messages, 
we find Elijah, after soaring from victory to victory, we find him in the grips of deep depression, as it was ably read to us by Jonathan. Turn to it, please. And I hope that you have some way to write some things I'm going to share with you, and I pray to God will use them in your life as He's using it in my life. 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 12. Again, it's page 559 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your own Bible with you. You remember in verse 46 of chapter 18, that's where we left Elijah. Verse 46 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, that's where we left him. And he was running a 14-mile marathon faster than a horse. Remember, he was running in front of King Ahab, chariot. Just few verses. He got down just few verses of 19.3, <laughs> and now he's running for his life. I want to show you on the map. This is how far he ran. That's the first, the first part. Mount Carmel, you remember the Israel was split in two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes, kingdom of Judah, where Judah and Benjamin down in the south. And this is a hundred-mile track. He comes running all the way from Samaria, where Mount Carmel was, the capital of the northern kingdom, all the way to Beersheba, and even then he leaves his servant there, and he goes for a long walk, and then he puts his head between his knees under a juniper tree and says, God, kill me. Kill me. I want to remind you, just only a few days, few days, not many days, few days earlier, Elijah stood in the power of Yahweh. Elijah called in faith upon Yahweh, and fire came from heaven, licked everything on sight. After nine hours of the prophets of Baal cutting themselves and dancing and gyrating, calling upon Baal, Baal never heard them. But in the power of Yahweh, Elijah prays and God answers. Elijah experienced supernatural power of Yahweh. Elijah was used by God to perform one of the greatest miracles since the parting of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. Elijah himself exercised God's judgment upon the false prophets of Baal and liquidated 850 of them. Then Elijah goes up and he prays for rain, trusting in the promises of God. And after three and a half years of drought and the land was drying up, God sends rain and He drenched the, 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 the land. And yet, this is where He is now. Some of you are probably saying, oh, wait a minute, Michael. Wait a minute. How come? I'm going to explain it to you. Be patient with me. It's very important for all of us. Meanwhile, wicked King Ahab, what does he do? Instead of repenting of his sin, instead of repenting of his compromise, instead of repenting of worshiping Baal and Yahweh all at the same time, he goes home to mama. <laughs> Evil, wicked, 
Jezebel. And he walks in like a little boy, afraid of his mother. I think Ahab had a child-mother relationship with Jezebel, not a (laughs) husband-wife. Watch how dependent he is on Jezebel. Watch how she had complete control over him and a complete control over Israel. And she was not an Israelite. She was a Baal-worshipping daughter of the king of Sidon. When Ahab reports to Jezebel what happened, oh my goodness, he never once, never once would mention the awesome manifestation of Yahweh's power. Not once. He never said to her, sugar pumpkin, (laughs) Yahweh is real. Your Baal is a false god. For nine hours they cried out to him, and he never answered. We're not going to worship Baal anymore. We're going to turn and worship the living God. Not once. And the moment this lady Macbeth of the Old Testament, here's what happened to her precious prophets of Baal. She becomes enraged. I mean, she was enraged. What what, what do they say about Woman's fury. I'm going to move on. (laughs) She probably started throwing furniture and pots and pans. Oh, wait a minute. That's Hillary Clinton. That's not uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I get them. When I get older, I get confused, and I confuse people. (laughs) I confuse people sometimes. And she was swearing by her gods who turned out to be useless anyway. She swears by her God, the worthless Baal, that she is going to put a contract on Elijah's life. Now, I need to stop here for a minute and tell you. Always remember, whenever you experience a great victory at the hand of God, victory over sin, victory over temptation, victory over whatever it is that you were struggling with, and God gives you victory and blesses you, I want you to know that moment Satan is burning the the midnight oil. He is working overnight. He got all his demons activated. He is working hard. Why? Because he is furious at the fact that you have experienced victory and that you're rejoicing in your victory. And so what does he do? He uses some undiscerning, non-discerning family member, friend, or maybe even a church member to steal away the joy of your victory. Usually, trust me when I say this, usually whatever that person says to you uh, is so infinitesimal, so small, in comparison to the great victory that you just have received at the hand of God. Usually it's so small. But whether it is a flippant word, whether it is a careless remark, and whether it's a silly email or a text, that little thing begins to occupy all of your thoughts, all of your time. What about the great victory? Ah, Satan succeeded in stealing your joy the joy of your victory. This is Satan's 
modus operandi. Take it from me. I know of what I'm talking. Look at verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid. Think about this. Just think about this for a long time. Elijah was afraid. Elijah was not afraid to confront Ahab the first time. He was not afraid to confront Ahab the second time. He was not afraid on Mount Carmel when he called upon fire from heaven and God answered. Elijah was not afraid when he got rid of all 850 prophets of Baal and Asher. Even before that, uh, when, when, when he was in Zarephath, that's the very city, the very center of Baal worship, you remember. Even there he was not afraid. But now, suddenly, he was afraid of Jezebel, and he runs. He runs all the way to Beersheba in the land of Judah in the southern kingdom. Here's something that I give it to you as an aside. I always tell you of something in the Word of God or it's not in the Word of God because I, I'm, 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 I, I treat the Word of God so sacred that I do not add or change anything. And even when I tell you it's my own interpretation, I'll tell you that ahead of time. But I want to tell you that Elijah's servant, that's mentioned here several times, there's a Jewish interpretation, Jewish tradition. This is even before the time of Christ in the Old Testament. Some rabbis have interpreted or have believed that this servant of Elijah is no other than the son of the widow in Zarephath whom he raised from the dead. Now, I'm going to come back to that because it's important if it's true. Elijah leaves him there, and then he goes on for a long journey into the desert where it's 120 degrees in the shade. And so he sits under that Juniper tree, and it says, kill me, Lord, kill me, kill me now. Well, some of you might say, Michael, for weeks now you've been holding Elijah as the great man of God, the great man of faith. Look at him now. Yes, that's why James said he was a man like us. He was not a superman. He prayed, and God answered. But he's not only the man of God not the only man of God who ever suffered and felt this way. He's not the only one. Read the Scripture. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, Moses said, I've had enough of these people complaining and murmuring and criticizing me and bad-mouthing me. Just kill me, Lord. Jonah, who had the greatest awakening in, in any history of the Old Testament, with he through his preaching, pagan Nineveh repented and turned to Yahweh. Right after that great victory, what does he do? He sits under a tree and says, God, kill me. Jeremiah, the great man of God in Jeremiah chapter 20, he got so discouraged, he got so despondent at the apathy and the compromise and the departure from the faith by the people of God and the lack of faith in Yahweh. He said, I wish that you would take my life. 
Now, after this very brief introduction, I get to the message. <laughs> Actually, this time I mean it. I want to give you four quick lessons. Four lessons. I pray to God you would never forget four lessons that I have learned from the Word of God, from this passage. Four things. First lesson, never, never, never act or make a major decision right after a great victory that God has given you unless God Himself says so. Do you get that? I want to unpack it a little bit. Verse 3. You'll see something there in verse 3 that is so uncharacteristic of what we've been seeing message after message after message about Elijah. And when you, some of you are now picked up on it, I, I, I know because I know many of you, so you, some of you already know this uncharacteristic thing that took place here that never happened before. Everywhere you see Elijah move, it is because the word of the Lord came to Elijah and says, move. You got that? The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. In 17.2, go to Kareth Brook. Uh, in 17.8, the word of the Lord came. Go to Zarephath. 18.1, after three long years of drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Can you see the pattern? You see what I'm talking about? All of his movements were directed by the Lord. And you come here at verse 3 of chapter 19, and you look at it again, look at it again, please notice, there is no word from the Lord that says run for your life. No word from the Lord here. But he allowed fear to guide him. He allowed fear to penetrate deep into his mind and heart, and he went on the run. Let me put it in a language that you and I experience. And now I'm talking to the faithful believers, sons and daughters of the living God, those who have committed their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are walking with Him faithfully. This is how I'm going to put it in the vernacular. You and I sometimes get blindsided. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you've been there, but I'm raising both hands. <laughs> blindsided. Blindsided. Elijah just got blindsided. Hear me right, please. The best of men are only men at best. Let me repeat this. The best of men are only men at best. First, do not make a move, especially after a great blessing and victory, without a word from the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen? Again, I'm talking to the believers. I'm not talking about those who premeditatingly, deliberately living and faithful to the Lord. That's not, he's going to deal with them differently. I'm talking to the believers. I mean, I'm talking about you get blindsided by by, by some letter or some phone call or an email or a text or 
some sort of personal attack, and wham, you act and react immediately. Don't respond to this type of thing immediately. Actually, you don't have to respond at all. Second lesson. Elijah left himself alone, all alone. At the time when he least should be alone, the least, he left his servant in Beersheba and went on walking. I told you earlier that when you are down and discouraged and depressed, you should not be alone. Somebody would say, well, Michael, didn't the Lord Jesus went alone with the Father, spend time with the Father alone? Yes. This is a thing that all must do on a regular daily basis. But that's not what I'm talking about. We have to have time alone with God. But this is not one of those times when you move from victory to sudden defeat is not the time to be alone. Listen to me. If the Jewish tradition or Jewish interpretation is right, and that this young man, the servant of Elijah, is none other than the young boy that earlier he raised from the dead in Zarephath. I want you to imagine with me, if this young man is with him and did not leave him in Beersheba, and he would hear Elijah saying, God, I'm not better than my ancestor. Kill me and kill me now. Can you imagine what he would have said to him? He would have said, no, Elijah, do you remember that God, what God did in Zarephath? Do you remember the cruise of oil and the jar of flour? Do you remember how they lasted for years and they fed us all? Do you remember that I was dead and by Yahweh's power you raised me from the dead? No, Elijah, you taught me to hope in God. You taught me to trust in God. You taught me to kneel on the promises of God. Elijah, do you remember how many times he sent me back toward the Mediterranean to look for a cloud? And as soon as I reported to you there was a hand size of a cloud, you started handing umbrella. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember how you showed me how that God's delay, the, the, delay is not often his denial? You taught me, Elijah to cling to the promises of God, you taught me that God always, always, always keeps His promises. Do you remember, Elijah, when I told you that I found only a small hand of, 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 of a cloud and you expected the deluge to come? No, Elijah, God's still in the miracle business, and He will deliver you from wicked who delivered you from wicked Ahab, is able to deliver you from this ruthless queen Jezebel. Beloved, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You must not be alone under these circumstances. The reason we have so many home groups all over the city in many counties, and, and, and we have discipleship groups here, we have Bible studies, and and, and it's because no one should face the challenges of life alone. Talk to T.J. Diamond. He'll help you. For the last 10 years, he's been 
pouring his heart and his life and putting people together in home groups, small groups, uh, discipleship groups. He will do it. He will help you join a group. Please, please, if you are right in the midst of, of discouragement, don't be alone. Be in fellowship with at least another believer, because what you're going to do is you're going to recite the Word of God to each other. You're going to, you're going to fellowship around the Word of God and, and share the Word of God together and lift each other up. And that is why the Lord Jesus sent him out two by two. That's why the Apostle Paul always traveled with companions. Some of you in these very difficult days, and I hate to be a prophet of doom, but it's going to get worse. I'm sorry. I'm not really a prophet of doom. I'm just a fruit inspector. (laughs) And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And that is why it is absolutely vital in these last days not to be alone facing the challenges of life and the challenges to our Christian faith. We're having as much persecution here in this country now as I have seen in many other parts of the world that Christians being persecuted. Different kind of persecution. Third lesson. Whenever you are down and depressed... You lose perspective. You lose objectivities. You lose perception of reality. Look at verse 2 with me, please. Verse 2. Elijah ran away from Jezebel because he did not want her to kill him, right? But he goes to God and says, now you kill me. You see, you lose all sense of perspective. You really do. If if he's serious, really want to die, he could have stayed home. (laughs) Jezebel would have obliged him. She really would. I'm thinking she would have been the best killer there is because she would have done it with passion. But when you are at the bosom bosom of defeat, listen to me. You lose touch with reality. Look at what he said. I am not better than my ancestors. Well, what does that mean? Let me give you a Yusuf interpretation, okay? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. It's all futile. reminded me of a story of the mother who was trying to wake up her son in the morning to go to school. And she kept saying, son, wake up. You need to go to school. I'm not going to school. Son, you need to go to school. You must go to school. No, no, I'm not going to school today. I'm not going to school. Son, you need to go to school. No, I'm not going to school. Nobody loves me there. Everybody hates me. Uh, they despise me. over there. Everybody despises me there. I'm not going to school. Son, you must go to school. Finally, he said to her, give me two good reasons why I should go to school today. She said, reason number one, you are over 40. (laughs) Reason number two, 
you are the headmaster. Elijah obviously did not know that he's going to end up in the sacred pages of the Scripture. He did not know that we'd be studying him in the 21st century in this beautiful church, and those who are watching millions around the world, and Kingdom Sat, and other online watching, listening to the life of this man of God. And so I want you to be careful. Just be careful. When you get into your doldrums, and you have a pity party, I want you to remember Elijah. God can use you again. Remember this. God can use you again. Can you say it with me? The fourth and final lesson. Elijah was exhausted in every way possible, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Look at verse 5. He's at the bottom of depression and discouragement, that he fell asleep. That's not a good sleep. That's a sleep of depression. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That was sleep of despondency. That's a sleep of depletion. Um, That was a sleep that when you wake up, you're more tired than when you went to sleep. He was physically exhausted. He ran 100 miles. He was emotionally and spiritually exhausted because he had been through Mount Carmel experience. Now, beloved, there is nothing that can exhaust a faithful, faithful child of God. Nothing exhausts you emotionally, spiritually, and even psychologically than spiritual warfare. I know some of you know that. I know that. Spiritual warfare can absolutely drain you in every way. So be very careful. Listen. You could not endure that confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then you pour your heart heart and soul to the Lord, kneeling on the promises of God and expecting God to send the rain as He promised three and a half years earlier. You cannot confront this wicked witch of the north without being depleted. Some people don't understand that ministry can at times drain you completely. Completely, but hear me right on this. Listen carefully, because this is the most important part. This is the most important. Because if you think the most important part of what I'm telling you is to do about Elijah's discouragement and depression, you would miss out on the greatest blessing. You really would. So, will you promise, focus with me? I know I'm ADD, but most of you are not, thank God. So stay with me, all right? Can I get an amen? amen? Because that is not the most important part of this event in Elijah's life. It is not. The most important thing about this is how God, our God, restores His faithful children when they're blindsided. This is the most important part. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You see, God's depleted children 
who are in the service of the living God can be totally and completely restored. Can I get an amen? amen? The Bible said that God woke him up, and he yelled at him, you weak-willed, vacillating coward, I gave you an important assignment, and you blew it. Now, have you found it in your Bible yet? You never will. You never will. How God deals with His despondent, depleted son or daughter is very important. The most important part of this whole message, this whole series, experiencing the visible hand of the invisible God, is filled with application, the whole series. Listen to me, especially all of you believers, born again, Christians who love Jesus, is your Lord and is your Savior, and you love Him with all your heart, but you, especially I want to speak to those who are God's little helpers. I want to speak to those who are overachievers. I want to speak to those who are perfectionists. Listen to me. This is a word from the Lord only for those believers. Sometimes you are harder on yourself than God is. Did you get it? Look what happened. God meets and matches every need that Elijah had. He meets and matches every point of his needs, every point of his needs. How? He did not wait for a word from the Lord, and he ran. What did the Lord do? He gives him a word. He would not stay in companionship with his servant, his assistant, and he want to be alone. He rejected human companionship, or what does God do? He sends him an angel to accompany him. He desperately needed food and drink. What does God do? He provides both supernaturally. God did not say, oh, you imbecile, you let me down. No, that's why I'm telling you, this is the most important part. This is not how our God deal with His faithful children who have been blindsided after a great victory. After Elijah ate and drank, he went back to sleep. Then after he was fully restored, the angel wakes him again. Now he's ready to resume his ministry. He's ready now to hear the voice of God. The earthquake, the fire, the wind, and all of these things. But God was not speaking through them. He was whispering in his child's ear. Be careful that you fill your environment with noise that you miss the whisper of God. Be very careful. Now I really, having had a a word from the Lord to the superachievers, the hard workers, those who serve and give and do all this. I want to have a word with the spectators on the stand. 
Ooh, quietness, because I am an equal opportunity offender. All of you spectators, some of you who could be at church but sitting there in your pajamas and cup of coffee, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. All who are professional listeners to sermons, they are professional listeners like the day of Ezekiel. God said they just come and get entertained by listening to you. want to say, what is the last thing He's going to tell us? I see and I read about those people in social media, the professional listeners. I have a word from the Lord for you. Wake up before it's too late. Wake up before you face the soon coming Jesus. For the discouraged, there's a word of encouragement. For the slothful, there's a word of rebuke. I know some of the spectators, the professional listeners, probably saying, man, goodness, when they heard the first part and they said, I've been waiting for Michael to say this for a long time. I've got to go back to sleep now. No. No. Wake up. Wake up. For those of us who are here in this sanctuary, we're going to have an altar call. It's going to be different from the one I gave last time. This altar call is to come at this table of the Lord. Don't come as a habit. Don't come as a ritual. Don't come just because other people are coming. Only come if you are repentant of your sin, forgiven by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is not apostles' table. This is the Lord's table. And it's open to everyone who have surrendered their life totally, completely to Christ. In a moment, I'm going to be asking you to join me in a confession. Would you bow your heads in prayer, please? Lord, as we were praying downstairs with the leaders of this church and confessing to you that your grace is so indescribable, that your grace and mercy are so overwhelming. I get overwhelmed by your grace and by your mercy, by your willingness to forgive repentant sinners like me, that sometimes I get choked up overwhelmed. And I believe that all of us who know you and love you feel the same way. We're so grateful to you. We thank you that this table reminds us of your blood that was shed for us. It reminds us of your body that was torn on the cross for us. Forbid it that we come down these aisles casually without being stricken in our hearts of our unworthiness and your great mercy. 
for I pray this in Jesus' name. Now you can join with me. You can mouth the words, but I also...